Hi, friends. How are we doing today? Well, I'm glad you came to church, and I'm thankful for those of you who joined us online. We're thrilled you're a part of what God's doing here today. This morning, we continue a series we're calling The Cycle of Grace. It was introduced to me by Trevor Hudson, but, but it was first developed by the British psychologist Frank Lake. I'll reiterate some of the things I told you last week. Here's how the cycle of grace came about. Lake, alongside Swiss theologian Emil Bruner, grieved as they observed missionaries who set out for the mission field with passion and fervor, ready to serve the poor and show the love of Jesus to the communities to whom they were called. But invariably, many would return home after a short period of time bitter and burned out. They became resentful and cynical about God and life. The scholars wondered, how could people do the work of Jesus without the peace of Jesus? Now, the first step in their study was to immerse themselves in the Gospels. They they studied how the first four books of the New Testament described the life of Jesus. As they did so, Lake and Bruner observed a pattern which they called the cycle of grace. Now, we went over it in detail last week. Here's a quick summary. The cycle begins with acceptance. Jesus knows who he is and where he stands in relationship to God the Father. Before uh, Jesus even began his ministry, he embraced his identity. At his baptism, God the Father proclaimed, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. In response, Lake and Bruner warned that uh, of the dangers of doing anything for God before having a strong sense of your identity in God. Now, if you truly believe that God loves you, but before you've done anything, then your doing will never become earning. The second way in, in which grace flowed into the life of Jesus was what Lake and Bruner called sustenance. They, they considered all the soul-filling activities that Jesus engaged in throughout the Gospels. And they observed Jesus built his life on a number of practices that sustained him, like prayer, solitude, reflecting on the Bible, worship, friendship. Well then, from that, Lake and Bruner discerned our need for spiritual practices. You see, we do things that bring us closer to God and God works in us through those practices to shape us and mold us and strengthen us. In the significance phase, Lake and Bruner underscored how Jesus knew and embraced his purpose. He recognized he was the way, the truth, and the life. And thus, showed he knew his meaning, his purpose. Uh, Lake and Bruner concluded then that we need to recognize our God-given purpose. We are called to be God-bearers to the world. We're born to be active partners in God's mission of love and peace and joy and justice, bringing heaven on earth, bringing up there, down here. Well, that brings us to the final phase of the cycle of grace, uh, it's what our friend Trevor calls fruitfulness. But, but Lake and Bruner labeled it achievement. Here we're talking about outcomes. We're talking about results. Well, after considering the, the life of Jesus in the Gospels and contrasting it with, with the lives of the missionaries, Lake and Bruner concluded that people in ministry were not living the cycle of grace. They were running through the cycle backwards counterclockwise against the flow of grace. 
They work tirelessly to achieve and be fruitful in order to feel significant. And they hope that feeling of significance would sustain them so that others would accept them. They called this the cycle of works. Now, here's a key point I don't want you to miss. In the cycle of works, the ultimate goal is acceptance. The ultimate ambition is to be loved. But with God, you begin there before you even lift a finger. Friends, that's the subject of today's message. You are accepted by God before you do anything for God. Actually, I think accepted is too weak a word to describe how God feels about you. Today, I hope to convince you, you are an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. Before we look to the Bible, let's look to God. Ask him to help us. Lord, as we study this idea of acceptance, I pray we embrace it to be not just theoretically true, but personally true. No matter our circumstances, no matter our season of life, no matter how bad this week was, Lord, we ask you to open our eyes to see how much you love us and may our experience of your love today transform the way we think and feel and live tomorrow. We pray this in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Today, I want to tell you about Emma's songs. Emma's my oldest daughter. She turns 21 next Saturday. And for the last two decades, there are two tunes that we've claimed to be Emma Cates. Now, I should be clear. Emma did not pick these songs. They picked her. You see, Suzanne and I struggled with infertility for many years, and we didn't know if we'd ever have a baby. But there are two songs that that played on the radio over 21 years ago as we sat in a doctor's waiting room waiting to find out if we were pregnant. We called them Emma's songs because they were both playing on the radio when we found out we were having a little girl. And get this, they were both playing on the radio nine months later as we drove to the hospital to deliver her. Now, I want to play a little snippet of them. I'm curious if you recognize them. Here's the first one. Does anybody know it? Nothing's going to change my love for you by Glenn Medeiros. The song reached number one in some markets in 1987. And that's a nice song, isn't it? Here's how Medeiros looked in the 80s. Is it there? There it is. Ladies, what's more captivating? His hair? His chest hair? Or the gold cross poking through his chest hair? Now, uh, there was another song on the radio after Nothing's Gonna Change My Love for You. And remember, we heard them both in the waiting room and nine months later on the way to the hospital. And and what do you think of this? It can't be a coincidence, right? God must have intended great meaning in the selection of both songs, right? Right? Would you like to hear the second one? Here it is. Hear me, 
Friends, this is absolutely true. It's the Wild Cherry hit from 1975. Play that funky music. And my friends, these are Emma's songs, whether she likes them or not. Okay, I have not yet discerned the meaning for Emma from Play That Funky Music. But I have no doubt what God was up to with the first song. Because I long for Emma Kate to understand for the rest of her life that nothing's ever going to change my love for her. Friends, there is nothing she can do or not do to shake it. If she hates my guts, my love won't falter. If if she turns from me and turns from God, my love won't fail. But to be sure, I may fail her, but my love for her is so sticky, she'll never be able to shake it off. Well, next month, my little girl is moving out. And we're excited that Emma gets to spread her wings and forge a new life with a little more independence. You know, it's a really good thing when a kid grows up. And I'm, I'm telling you, I love the young woman that she's turned out to be in King Jesus. But if I'm going to be honest, I have some mixed feelings about Emma moving out. I'd tell you that it also kind of sucks. But you know, I don't think pastors should say sucks. So what do we say around capital? Sucketh. That's right, just like Mother Teresa used to say. Hmm? Yeah. Hey, I'm going to miss my little girl. But as much as I want Emma and her sisters to know that I love them, as much as I want them to feel that deep down in their bones, I would much rather they knew how God feels about them. And actually, God feels an impossibly greater love than I ever could. One of my favorite phrases in the New Testament is this phrase, how much more? We see it a a lot throughout the Bible. Here's one example from Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 7, verse 11. He says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, I won't take time to explain the context, uh, though I'll advise you, don't get too shook up about his use of the word evil. He's making a philosophical argument. Rabbis called it a kalvachomer, arguing from light to heavy, uh, from minor to major. Here's the idea. If an argument is true in the lesser case, then how much more in the greater. Jesus says, if a flawed earthly father like me has an unshakable love for Emma Kate, then how much more? A perfectly holy God who is both infinite and intimate. Did you know God loves you like that? Now, that may be hard for you to believe today, especially if you didn't have a dad who showed you love. Not all of us had godly, loving fathers. Maybe you've spent years peeling away the layers of anger and resentment because of the way your father treated you. 
Maybe your dad was easy to anger and impossible to please. Maybe your dad abandoned you. Maybe your dad abused you. And friends, if that's a part of your story, I ache with you today. Our our parents are the first people we look to for unconditional love. We long to hear the words, I love you no matter what. But some of those some of us didn't hear those words very often, if ever. And as a result, we grew to know love to be conditional. We get it if we earn it. We get it if we're good. And friends, I got to say, that sucketh. But what makes matters worse is, we then project that conditional love onto God. We assume he loves like we've been loved. And there's no way we deserve the conditional love an all-seeing, all-knowing God. (laughs) Well, today, I hope to persuade you, before you've done anything to deserve it, and after you've done plenty to lose it, that God thinks you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God. Okay, to elaborate on this point, I want to take you to a story in the Bible about a man named Zacchaeus as he meets Jesus. We catch up with him in Luke 19, beginning in verse 1. Luke tells us Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Okay, this verse is one of those verses we usually glide past to, to get to the key plot points of the story. But friends, I'm not sure this isn't a key point. Luke wants us to know Jesus was passing through Jericho. He was going somewhere else. He had important business to do. In fact, Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem where he knows he'll become a sacrifice for the sins of the world. That that means whatever's about to happen is an interruption. That means whatever's about to happen will delay Jesus from his important work. But friends, Jesus loves it when we interrupt him. Do you hear me? Here's the truth. Jesus will stop everything and drop everything when you turn to him. That's because you are an irreplaceable individual with measurable value to God. Luke tells us, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Okay, in ancient Israel, tax collectors were despised. They were considered in the same class as thieves and murderers because they were in cahoots with Rome. You see, Israel was an occupied territory under the subjugation of the Roman Empire. And while there may have been benefits to living under the thumb of Caesar, the Israelites, by and large, hated it. They they longed to be free of Rome's reach in their own country with their own king. But tax collectors were Israelites who compromised. Tax collectors were Rome's minions who levied taxes from their people. And everybody knows tax collectors tended to shave a little off the top for themselves. Tax collectors built their own people for their own selfish gain. And apparently Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector, which means he's probably a chief cheater. No wonder he's so wealthy. By the way, his name means righteous one in Hebrew. Yeah, the irony's not lost on us, Luke. Verse 2. 
He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. See, Zacchaeus was a little guy. I grew up singing a, a kid's song in church. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Savior he wanted to see. Luke is writing his gospel in Greek, and he uses the imperfect tense for the first verb, implying Zacchaeus has wanted to see Jesus for some time now. Oh, he's heard the rumors of how God worked through this man, and he wanted to see for himself. Now, here's an important theological observation. Those of you who started the Experiencing God Bible study I recommended last week may pick up on it. When you see someone curious about Jesus, that's God working in their soul. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. God is apparently already at work in the heart of Zacchaeus. And by the way, if you find yourself being drawn to, to search for God in this season... That's a sign of God's work in you. That's a sign of God's love for you. That's a sign that you are an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. Luke tells us, he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. Zacchaeus thinks ahead and runs ahead. A sycamore tree is a great climbing tree and this distinguished man of means and power makes good use of it. Now, not only is this scene ridiculous, it's probably dangerous. And I'm not talking about him falling out of a tree. It's dangerous for a man this little and this loathed to throw himself into a crowd of people he's likely swindled. But this guy's so eager to see Jesus, he braves the crowds in spite of what people think, in spite of how they'll react. When Jesus reached the spot... He looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. A couple observations. First, Jesus called him by name. Zacchaeus may have been well known to the crowds, but, but he's not well known to Jesus who was just passing through Jericho. Except that Jesus is God in flesh and blood and God knows who you are and God knows where you are. Now, for some, that may sound like a threat. But it's only a threat if God's out to get you. My friends, God's not out to get you. God's out to love you. Because you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God. And in my experience, God can be a little assertive with his love. Did you know, this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus invites himself to somebody's house. And there's a reason. It's not normal in the ancient Near East to invite yourself to someone's home. In fact, it might have been perceived as a little rude. But Zacchaeus doesn't seem to care. He came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Well, The crowd, however, gets a little fussy about it. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Okay, watch. The ire of the people shifts from Zacchaeus to Jesus. 
Because they expected Jesus to be on their side. They expected Jesus to, to spurn the tax collector and to show him judgment. In the next verse, we see Zacchaeus respond to Jesus' self-invitation. Now, we don't know if it happened at the base of the tree. We, we don't know if it happened later at, at his home as he, he reclined around the table, according to their custom. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, his response of generosity and restitution is far greater than what's required of him in the law of Moses. But that just shows the impact Jesus had on him. And it illustrates what happens to people when we embrace Jesus' love and acceptance. But friends, here's the key point. The acceptance of Jesus preceded the repentance of Zacchaeus. See, this was a response to God's love, not an attempt to earn it. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this home because this man too is a son of Abraham. Salvation, it means rescue, it means deliverance. And with his love, Jesus rescues Zacchaeus from the sin that's kept him ostracized from God and God's people. And then he's given a new identity, or rather an old one. To be a son of Abraham was to be identified as one of God's people and a recipient of God's blessings. The people, and maybe Zacchaeus, concluded that his sin kept him from God. Not anymore. Jesus explains, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The story started with Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. It ends with Jesus seeking him. But maybe that's what the story was about all along. It was always a story of God looking for his people when they couldn't be found or didn't want to be found. And God's been seeking us from the beginning. And Genesis 6, after Adam and Eve sin, they hide from God in their shame. But God goes looking for them. Where are you? He asks God always is looking to restore the relationship because you are an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. Think about this for a moment. There is nothing you can do to change God's love for you. And that's true in spite of your sin, in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your suffering. In Romans 8.35, the apostle asks, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Maybe you've been thinking that your suffering says God doesn't love you, or God doesn't care. Don't you believe it? Here in verse 35, Paul piles on words to cover all kinds of crises, most of them a little more difficult than our dilemmas. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. Paul asks, could any of these things really separate you from God's love? No. Here's the real question. Have you let something get between you and God's love? Verse 36, as it is written, Paul says, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Okay, this is a quotation from Psalm 44. And Psalm 44 is a lament in which the songwriter 
angrily confronts God for abandoning his people. Okay, why on earth would Paul quote Psalm 44 when he's trying to convince us of God's love? Because I can think of other Psalms, Paul. I got a few off the top of my head. Well, Paul suspects some of his readers are questioning God's love because of their suffering. If you've seen enough years, maybe you've said something similar to God. Don't you care that I'm out of work? Don't you care that he broke my heart? Don't you care that she's dying? Maybe you've worn out your voice praying and pleading, begging for God to intervene, but you don't see him anywhere. Well, Paul points back to the desperate pleading Psalm 44. He ties his experience and our experience to the prayer of the psalmist. And he says, you may think that God has given up. You may think that God doesn't care. But hardship doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Paul emphatically denies it. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because he loved us, we can conquer our crises. And not only will we overcome, we will be more than conquerors. The the Greek word literally translates hyper-conquerors or super-conquerors. God's love makes you an avenger. Then Paul adds his personal testimony saying in verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, there is nothing in flesh or spirit, there is nothing in time or space that can hide you from the radical, persistent, and unrelenting love of God. It will chase you, it will hunt you down, Your feelings may come and go, but not the love of God. Your commitment may ebb and flow, but not the love of God. And my friend, if you grasp even in part the unrelenting, unshakable love of God, you will not be conquered by the worst this life will throw at you. Now, I know that may be hard for you to believe, but I'm going to dare you to believe. I'm going to dare you to trust that tug you feel right now in your heart of the possibility that this may be true for you, that you really are an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. I, I came up with that phrase about a year ago, and maybe you heard me say it. I'll slip it into a sermon here or there. Um, I say it a lot in, in private conversation with people. You're an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. So sometime over the last year, as a joke, I slipped in the word, you're an irredeemable individual. With it. Yeah, I was kidding. But then I started to say it wrong when I'd say it to people. That's not that funny, is it? But as I think about that, that's how some of us think. No, I'm an irredeemable individual with very little value to God or this world. Hmm. I'm going to dare you to believe. I want to conclude by taking you to to a prayer of Paul that you may find helpful uh, to to shape the way you think and feel about how God thinks and feels about you. And it's in Ephesians chapter 3. I pray, Paul says in verse 17, that you being rooted and established in love. Okay, 
As Paul begins this part of the prayer, the opening clause makes the point. You're already loved and you know it. You see, Paul is writing to a group, probably a few groups, uh, of followers of Jesus in a portion of Southeast Asia ruled by Rome. Paul taught many of them with his own two lips that, that God loves them fiercely and he's already laid the groundwork. Well, to, to make his point, Paul uses two metaphors. He, he says his reader is already rooted in God's love like a plant and established or, or founded in God's love like the foundation of a building. I want to take the second analogy first. The disciples of Jesus who first read Paul's words have already been established in God's love for them. Think about it. What does a foundation do for a structure? A foundation anchors the building to the ground to help it stand against the forces of nature. And a foundation offers a level surface, a level surface for someone to build upon. If someone has built their life on a foundation of God's immense love, it is amazing how they stay standing even in the storms of life. And and the foundation of God's love is so strong and so deep, you can build a big life on it. The ground will not give way under it. Secondly, Paul's making a slightly different point. Knowing his first reader was already rooted in God's love. A plant finds life because it's rooted in good soil. From the soil it finds nourishment. The the soil is a source. And you can let the roots of your life sink deep into the soil of God's love. See, that's where the fruit comes. Not, Not from you trying hard, but from God loving hard. Paul says to his friends, look, as I'm praying for you to experience God's love, because that's the point of his prayer, He says, as I pray this, I know you already have. I'm just praying that you'll experience more. Well, that's a pretty good prayer. And I pray it for you, that you'd experience more of God's love in your life. But but what if the circumstances of Paul's first reader is not true for you? Look, we're all at different places on this spiritual journey. Paul is writing to disciples of Jesus, and you may not consider yourself a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. Paul is writing to people who have already become acquainted with God's love through Jesus. Uh, But maybe you haven't found nourishment and stability from God's love in your life as Paul's first reader. Well, if that's you, what if you could... How different might your life look if you walked the earth with a constant sense of God's love for you, even when you can't depend upon the love of the people around you? Just know, whether you're searching for God or you've already found him, Paul's ultimate point is the same. You are an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. You are more loved than you know. But Paul's not done praying. He just started. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Let's slow this passage down. First, he prays for you and all God's holy people. Don't be intimidated by that word holy. It doesn't mean perfect. It means set apart for a purpose. 
Paul's point is that you don't have to be special to grasp God's love. You are special. And God wants each of us to experience him like this. Key point. God's not going to withhold his love from you. He won't. Your earthly father may have. That ain't God, my friend. Second, Paul prays that we would have the power to grasp his love. The the word Paul uses in Greek here, it's only used here in the Bible. It's a rare word that describes a supernatural ability. And what he's praying for is that you would receive a divinely endowed imagination to grasp God's love. Paul prays that that we may have power together with all the saints uh, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Now, the, the translators of this verse rightly capture the intensity of the Greek verb with our English word grasp. Paul wants his readers to wrestle with an idea and conquer the concept. He prays that we might grasp and by implication be grasped by the immeasurable dimensions of Christ's love. Its width, its length, its height, its depth. Do you have any idea how much God loves you? Think think for a moment of the person in this world who loves you more than anyone then think how much more. Look, look, maybe your faith in God's love is being shaken because of your suffering. And I understand why. But maybe your faith doesn't have to be shaken. What if you could seek God's love in the midst of your suffering? God never promises the absence of problems, but he tells us how we can thrive in the midst of any threat. The key is understanding God's unrelenting love. Friends, here's the truth. Some people experience suffering and turn their backs on God because they believe he he failed them. Other people look for God's love in spite of their suffering and actually plumb its depths. See, what what Paul's praying for you, what, what I'm praying for you, is that God would open your eyes to see his astounding love for you before your problems are solved, before your body is healed, before your marriage is restored. I'm praying that God would help you grasp the the wonders of his love when you've exhausted all your options and all you have, have left to show for it is your exhaustion. I'm telling you, his love is vast. It's sprawling and it's shockingly stubborn. True love has a persistent quality to it. And and Paul wants you to grasp this. That's why he prays that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Then Paul prays, verse 19, that we may know this love. He uses the verb gnosko in Greek. He's not praying for mere intellectual or theoretical awareness of God's love. He's praying for personal knowledge based on personal experience. He wants us to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Now, that's an oxymoron. I pray that you'll know this unknowable love. This love that's beyond comprehension. This is a big prayer, isn't it? Because in a sense, there's no way we can know a love that's beyond knowledge. But Paul by no means intends to convey hopelessness. Quite the opposite. We shouldn't be discouraged. We should be thrilled. 
Because no matter how much of Christ's love you experience today, there's even more tomorrow. You will never find the end of its width, length, height, and depth. Now, why does Paul pray this? So so we can feel good about ourselves? So we can have a positive self-image? No, we're thinking too small. Paul prays that we might comprehend this love that's beyond comprehension so that, verse 19, we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What the heck does that even mean? It seems that Paul's analogy is getting away from him. But, But here's what he seems to be getting at. As we're filled up with all God's fullness, we can't help but be like him. We can't help but live like Jesus lived, love like Jesus loved, See, once you grasp God's love for you, it shapes you, it moves you, it transforms you because you are filled up with the very fullness of God. And filled up means completely filled up. It means perfectly filled up. Consider for a moment how this might change the way you deal with temptation, frustration, and aggravation. If you're filled up with the presence and the power of God, what will happen when a coworker criticizes you? What will happen when your mom hurts you again with her words? Will you rage out of control? Will will, will you collapse in anguish? Not anymore. Imagine walking the earth filled up with with the very life of God. The circumstances that used to bring you great anxiety will look like the trivial fears of a toddler. The the things that, that, that used to get your goat, not up your stomach in stress you'll see his opportunities for God to stretch you and strengthen you and show his glory. Temptation to sin would be a joke. It's not that you'd have the willpower to resist. It's that your desires will be transformed by God so that sin won't even look desirable. If you're filled up with the very fullness of God and and you come upon a crossroads where you have to choose to, to make a decision, God's principles go one way. The other way is more profitable. You wouldn't even hesitate to trust God because who wouldn't trust the lavish love of an infinite God? My friend, if you only knew how much he loves you, if you only if you only came to grips with the dimensions of his love, if you grasped that you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God. Let me pray for you. Father, in this moment, I pray for my friends. These wonderful people who are hardworking achievers who race at a pace to prove themselves to earn love from the world around them And I recognize our world operates largely on conditional love. But I pray the truth sinks deep into their souls, into their psyches. You don't. You accept us before we lift a finger. You call us your sons and your daughters. Long before we do anything like a prince or a princess. It's just who we are. It's not what we do, it's who we are. And the reason you love like that is because it's who you are.
And I know for various reasons, be it, be it a, a teaching from a religious community or, or an experience with a parent or a person of authority, a lot of us have gotten the wrong idea about you. I pray that you'd help us to rethink our thinking about who you are and how much you love us. But like Paul, I pray that my friends here in this building or watching online would truly grasp and truly know personally how much you love them. May they never doubt it. May, may you help them to, to push aside the lies of shame. So they might they receive your love. Receiving your love is a very hard thing to do. A lot of us don't like to receive things for free. Well, God, I pray you give us the humility and the faith to receive today. Lord, Lord, I pray that especially for somebody here who's who feels like they've thrown their life away and there's no way this could be true for them. May they recognize that you stopped everything today. You dropped everything today to show them your love. That's our prayer. And we pray it in the name of King Jesus. Amen. You do something crazy. Well, we've seen that. And by we, I mean you, not me. Oh. <laughs> we weren't planning this. Let's, we should join Tim in this. Some of you know it. You church kids know it. And if you don't know it, you should know it. Let's do this, Tim. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Can you receive it? Come on. Yes. Jesus loves me, oh yes, Jesus loves me, we sing yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Thanks Tim. I want to give you a little homework for the week, and I want to give you several assignments some a little more involved than others. Here's your first one. Would you just ask God to meet you right where you are? Now you should know this. This is what he does. You don't have to get your junk together before you turn to God. You hear me? You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to fix things and get yourself all squeaky clean. No! You, you you won't. It doesn't work like that. What, 
what what you should do is, is turn to Jesus now. Ask him to meet you right where you are and he'll help you get your junk together, okay? It's what he does. He loves that. And, and, he's, and he won't use shame. He'll use grace. He'll use mercy. It's who he is, right? It's who he is. Ask him to meet you right where you are. Secondly, remind someone that they are an irreplaceable individual with immeasurable value to God. Who might God put on your heart this week who needs to hear those words? Hmm? Maybe it's a family member, a son or daughter. Maybe it's maybe it's somebody at work. Yeah, don't make it weird. Or, or make it weird, I don't know. Like God give you wisdom, I don't know. But any will, right? We don't need to make this thing awkward out of some weird, bold attempt to show our faithfulness to God. But if God leads you to tell someone that, you simply say, you can say this in person, you can say this over a text if you're freaked out to look somebody in the eye. But you could say, I was thinking about you today and I want you to know you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God. I love you and he loves you more. Well, that's an interesting text, isn't it? Maybe you've got somebody in your life who needs to, to hear that. And maybe it's somebody who doesn't believe that about God. Eh, tell them what you think. Tell them about your experience, okay? Here's a third assignment. This one's a little more involved. I, I want to encourage you to write your own identity statement. Let, let me tell you what I mean. So I told you last week I, I've been a part of this, this cohort of pastors who... Um, these wonderful leaders who have known uh, my mentor from a distance, Dallas Willard, and and were discipled by him personally before Dallas passed away. And and one of them uh, is my friend Andrew, and Andrew Renucci lives in Sydney, Australia. And we're becoming closer and closer as the, as the months go on. But back in the fall, Andrew and I were on a Zoom conversation, and and uh, you know he sees who I am and how I'm wired. I'm like your classic quintessential achiever. And he had an idea for me. He said, Troy, an interesting thing that might help you in your walk with Jesus to, to, to dispel some of those fears or those worries that the outcomes are up to you. He said, what if you write an identity statement? A statement that says who you are in Jesus. Who you're called to be in him. Okay? And he had me do this, and he said, maybe what you do is, is when you wake up in the morning before you do anything else, just review it. You can read it, you can pray through it, but just take 30 days and and go through your identity statement after you've crafted it. Well, I, I did, and I found uh, great joy in doing so. And then um, my, my dear friend and colleague, Mackenzie, uh, she's Capitol's executive pastor. You saw her a moment ago. And yeah, she's more popular than I am. She's pretty cool. But she, I, I pitched this idea to her and I said, Mick, maybe, maybe you need to do this too. And she did. Okay. Now, uh, I, I want to tell you, first, I want to show you, oh, we've got me up there. Oh, you've already been reading it. Let me tell you, let me, here's mine. Here's mine. It says, I am a friend of Jesus. And he reveals his secrets to me each day as we share our thoughts, feelings, hopes, and dreams with one another. I'm a sheep with a shepherd who gives me everything I need to do everything he wants me to do. 
And I'm a disciple who disciples by inspiring others to seek and experience the abundant life of Jesus. That's my identity statement. Now, I took this idea to Mick, and here's what she came up with. Look at this. Mackenzie writes, I am a daughter of the Most High King, a royal princess in his household. He is always with me, always teaching me, and always loving me. She says, he he is always at work in me and through me. He helps me love and lead like him as he guides me along the right paths for his namesake. He never makes a mistake and humbles me with grace when I do. He loves me with a perfect love that I'm called to give others. He laid down his life for me and holds every piece of mine as I lay it down for those around me. Isn't that beautiful? So so Mick has this idea. She says, Troy, we need to do this with the whole team. And so we did. And over a period of a few weeks, we encouraged our church staff to um, go through this. and And it's a very personal process, mind you. It's very personal to do something like this because it's just between you and Jesus, okay? And they did. Would you like to hear some of them? Okay, here's one. Uh, Here's one from someone named Emma. She says, I am the daughter of the defender. He is patient as he teaches me to love back instead of fighting back. Those of you who have been around Capitol will know I taught her that when she was a little girl. He loves me where I'm at and encourages me daily. He teaches me to be a gentle and encouraging leader while reminding me that I need him as my own leader. I am the daughter of the defender, and he sees me as that. Here's what Samu wrote. He said, I am the disciple freaking out on the boat. Can anybody relate? He says, I'm the sheep that leaves the 99. I am the prodigal who left home. Sometimes that's all I can recognize myself as. But then you came along. You have, you have been and are my anchor in the storm. You are my good shepherd that rescues. You are my loving father who faithfully waits. Because of you alone, you've transformed me into someone so unrecognizable. A son of the great I am. Yeah. Kim, my old friend Kim wrote this. She's actually quite young. It's all, she's, I said old because we've known each other for a lot of years. Sorry, Kim. Kim writes, I am a child of a loving and gentle father. I am loved by the one who sees me, who draws me close and has been so faithful to me. He reminds me that I am his and he is mine. She says, I'm clay in the potter's hands, an ongoing work of art, rough edges smoothed out and perfectly designed for his glory. I am my father's masterpiece, created to do good works, which fills me with humility and confidence. I am blessed beyond measure, and I'm secure because my father reveals his plans for me, which are filled with hope and a future. And he reveals great and unsearchable things with me. I'm never alone, she says. Jesus is my shepherd who leads me and guides me through the darkest places and gives me a peace beyond understanding. His compassion and comfort, which he lavishes on me, 
helps me to have compassion and give comfort to others. She concludes, I am strong and courageous because my God is with me wherever I go. Now, I could do this all day. You want one more? Here's one more. This one's from some bloke named Tim. He says, Tim writes, I am a king's kid. I am a recipient, carrier, and distributor of God's grace. I am a result of God's intentionality, creativity, and humor. I am a trusted father to four wonderful gifts. I am learning his love for me as I seek to love them well. Watch this. I am not my mistakes. I am my response. I am surrendered. I've been called to lead worship. I will never do it without him. I'm an influencer and a gatherer of people. I have no reason to fear because he's with me. I'm nothing without Jesus. Okay. Now, friends, what if you could write something like this just between you and Jesus? Okay? I wonder if it's a spiritual practice you can put into place this week. Hmm? Think about it. Does it, you could, and we all had different versions of this, right? Some of us had shorter ones, some of us had longer ones, some of us wove the Bible, and some of us, it was just so personal. You know? And, and I'll tell you, when we did this at a staff meeting, we're all like laughing together and crying together, because this is really beautiful. And, and those of you who are in a small group, maybe you want to do this as a group together. And do what we did as a staff and share it with one another. It's beautifully vulnerable and wonderfully strengthening. And I know, I've talked to several of our team members over the months since we've done this, is they've said, yeah, no, I review this all the time. Because it helps me. It helps me to think right and feel right in Jesus. Will you consider putting this into practice? Okay, one last bit of homework. Listen to last week's message. Um, like, as we go through this cycle of grace, I, it was a little risky the way we've designed it with, with over five weeks because that introductory week is pretty important for you to understand what we're doing and how it all fits together. So if, if you missed our uh, our opening week last week, and I really want to encourage you to go to YouTube, go to our Capital Church website, and look for that message, listen to it, and, and see what the Lord teaches you. Will you stand with me? Friends, here's a verse for the week. From Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Oh, take it to heart, my friends. The, the image on the screen in this graphic uh, that follows will be available for you to download from our website. Please be watching for them. As always, if you'd like to receive prayer, you can send us an email, caretcapitalchurch.com, because we have a group of people who would love to pray over your need. And if you're here in the building today, we'll have some people here at the front. As our time together ends, you, you can make your way up and invite them to pray for you. I want to thank you for coming to church today. I want to thank you for patiently listening to my gravelly voice. If, if it wasn't so gravelly, Tim, I would have sung with you. Here's what I want to pray for you, friends. As you leave, may you embrace the belief that you are an irreplaceable individual with a measurable value to God. Thanks for coming today. Grace and peace.